0: Let's pray. Father God, thank you uh, that you do indeed, as we've already begun to touch on this morning, meet us in our suffering. And as we look at the subject, that's, that's the subject that we look at this morning. Lord, would you soften our hearts? We don't just want to have clever words, but we thank you. do have some really clever things to say. Um, I want to pray especially for anyone who's right in the midst of suffering, and pain, right now. I pray you'd come along, right alongside them, right now, Holy Spirit, overshadow them, and let them know that you're with them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That is the subject for this morning. I think this might be working. Is that right? Yeah. The subject is... Suffering, And the question is, why? Why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow suffering? In the series that we've been doing on Sunday mornings this summer, we've looked at various things, we've looked at sexuality and other religions and how can we be sure of, of our relationship with God and how does God guide us. But um, in some ways, this is like the mother of all questions, <laughs> This is the question that rises up in daily life, and it rises up with pretty much everybody. Surveys of why people struggle with religious belief focus straight in on this question. The top two answers to why do people struggle with religious belief, the top two answers are firstly, the problem of suffering, and secondly, the problem of evil, which is basically the same question. And a third, and it's a long way off in terms of the number of people that have an issue with it, is the issue of science and religion being in conflict. This is like the mother of all of the questions that people want to ask. Um, Some of us have been going out onto the streets of Oxford and seeking to tell people that God loves them, and he has an amazing plan for their lives. I was doing that again just yesterday morning and had the same experience that I've had regularly and so have others, which is that as soon as you start to talk to people at that, in that deeper way, a great proportion start talking about the suffering that they face, one way or another. Either as a kind of, ah, why are you doing this God stuff when there's this in my life? Why? It just makes, it's why does God allow suffering? And Others, there's more softness. And it's like, well, it's amazing that you're talking to me today. This is a story from a, from a month or two ago. It's amazing you're talking to me today, someone said, because today is the anniversary of my friend committing suicide. And I was just sitting here thinking about death and life and, and everything. It's amazing how quickly those things come to the surface. The longest conversation that I had um, yesterday with someone was a guy, with a guy who had taken three puffs of some drug that was a legal high that hadn't even been tested on animals but was being sold by people on the streets. And that had left him with a permanent disability. And uh, he said to us, we said, what can we pray for you? And he said, well, actually, my mum has cancer. My stepdad has cancer. These things cause us to ask questions. Does God love us at all? Why does he let people suffer with starvation, abuse, time and time again? Why would God allow a life to be cut short? Why does he allow babies and children to have illnesses and to die young? If God doesn't like violence, why does he let it happen? If God knew what our free will would do in the world, why didn't he just find a better way? Of making humanity? Those are the questions, and they are substantial questions. And I'm sure that if you're living at all openly as a Christian, and therefore having conversations with people about what faith means and about the love of God, this will come up. Quickly, it will come up. This um, problem of evil, this problem of suffering, it actually Uh, There there are two problems that are in here, and I'm going to take these two things separately, and I think that will help us. There is what is called the logical problem, and then there's also the emotional problem. Uh, The emotional problem weeps and laments. It has a complaint, it grieves, and it will not be comforted, but rails at the unfairness and the pain. This is what's going on when someone has just been diagnosed with, say, cancer, and cries out, not from somewhere in their thinking, but cries out from somewhere in their guts, just why? That's the emotional challenge, and we'll get to that in a minute. Before we do that, there is a logical problem. The logical problem of suffering is rather more succinct, and it goes like this. The logical problem says an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God would not permit suffering. But there is suffering. And therefore, there is no all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God. There can't be. Suffering disproves his existence. There is an answer to this, a logical answer, to a logical problem. And it comes out when we think about the question of purpose. See, we feel very differently about pain and suffering when it has a purpose. We see that in the person who's just received some awful medical diagnosis. What's the question that gets asked? Why? 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 There's something hardwired somewhere deep in us that says, well, if only there were a purpose to this, that would be utterly transforming. Why am I experiencing... Can anybody tell me why this is going on? Where there is a clear purpose for pain, we feel very, very differently about it. People training to run a marathon will experience a lot of pain along the way, but embrace it willingly. People even undergo cosmetic surgery, which is quite painful for the desired outcome. Where there is purpose in pain, we feel very differently about it. And so we really ought to expand this logical argument a little bit like this, that an all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful God would not permit suffering without good reason. If there was some some good reason for it, then it could occur. But the fact is, there is suffering for which I do not see any good reason. I cannot think of any good reason why Gabby should have this brain tumor. I can't think of any good reason, and nor can any of you. And if you tell me you've got a good reason, then you're wrong. Do you try and explain that away... There is a logical answer to this. So what is it? Well, it's to do with the fact that we, that the problem with this is to assume that if I don't know the reason for the suffering, then there isn't one. Indeed, that if no human knows the reason for the suffering, then there isn't one. Let me put up another little thing here. I've just put on this slide just a little box to suggest to you, if this, if this box contained, like, every single thing that there is to know, okay, and this was on a little bit of paper in front of you, and you got to put on there, how big would be the box of your knowledge? Out of, every, out of everything that there is to know... How, how big would your box be? You wouldn't be able to see it, quite small. Well, that's how I felt. I, I put that as about everything I know, only I did feel that that was too big. That's the main problem with this illustration, is there's only so many pixels on a computer screen, and you can't go small enough. If we just stop and think about it, of course that's true. Of course our knowledge is limited. The problem of suffering, this logical problem of suffering, hasn't been articulated like, at every point in history by every kind of civilization. It came up specifically in the West after the Enlightenment, that is, after the period in which people began to be more confident that as humans, we kind of know a lot of stuff. Like, we know stuff. Like, we've made airplanes and everything. Like, we know stuff. We can do surgery on brain tumors. It's like we know stuff. And somehow this perspective, that even with everything we know, still not a lot compared to everything that there is to know, this perspective got lost. And so the uh, way that most people in history have made sense of this is An all-loving, all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God wouldn't permit suffering without a good reason. There is suffering for which I do not see any reason. Therefore, God knows things I don't. For most cultures, Christian or otherwise, at most points in history, this would have been the logical conclusion to which people came. Said, ah, I am merely human. It's funny, isn't it? The whole, the, the clue... To to this, is in the first line, the first few words of the first line an all knowing God. If there is a God, he's all knowing, which is a very stark contrast to any of us who are nowhere near all knowing. So, you know, we could imagine all kinds of reasons why people suffer. But none of them cover all suffering. We can't say that all suffering is due to people's personal sinful choices because the righteous suffer just as much as the wicked. We can't even say that suffering is all down to other people's choices because then there's a lot of suffering that's caused by things like tsunamis, earthquakes more generally. These things were not the cause of anybody's choice. Neither can we say that all suffering is preparing us for eternity, making us more righteous. Because some people just suffer so much more than others, and they don't often look readier for heaven because of it. In fact, the book of the Bible that deals with pain and suffering more than any other is the book of Job in the Old Testament. It consists of page after page of people suggesting reasons for suffering. Uh, that takes up most of the book, suggesting reasons why they're suffering, which is then followed at the end by four chapters of God telling Job really just how little Job knew compared to him, and therefore how utterly unequipped Job was to suggest that he knew enough to judge God. That's the biblical answer. So the simple answer to the question of why does God allow suffering is, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe sometimes if you feel that you're, you have a, a role of defending the Christian faith, it feels like a pretty lame answer. say, so, well, I, 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 I don't know. Why your child is ill. I I don't know why your mum's dying, I don't know. But actually that statement, it's not a statement of confusion or defeat. It's a statement, on the one hand, of rigorous logic, (laughs) and on the other hand, it's a statement it's a statement of belief that God's greatness is just off the scale. Isn't that funny? The words, I don't know, being a statement of rigorous logic and strong faith, they are. And maybe if we were just a little bit more confident in saying, well, I don't know, some of those conversations would turn out for the better if we felt that wasn't just somehow getting out of the discussion, but actually taking the discussion forward. And for us as Christians to say so can do a huge amount of good. Well, so much for the logical argument. There's, there's logic for you. You can use these words, and um, they, you know, that may have provided you with some better arguments than you've been used to having in your mind. Um, but of course, this really doesn't help at all the person who's crying out from their guts. But why? Like Stillness makes no sense. If God loved me, he'd at least answer my prayers. Like why, why did he not just take all of the cancer out of Gabby's brain? What kind of God does that? Kind of half solves a problem. What kind of God is that? So the question doesn't go away. But it's not a, it's not a logical... The logical answer is, well, God knows all kinds of things and he has his reasons and it makes sense to let it be that he has his reasons. But that doesn't touch the heart in the way that we need. So at this point in the morning, we need to move on from milk to meat. <laughs> it's a phrase from the New Testament that talks about younger Christians being happy with, the, with receiving teaching that it's like milk, it's easy, and it's largely about what's good for you and enjoy the good things God's given you. And then there's some meat which is about learning to live righteously, which involves change in us. And this is the point at which we need to start looking at some meat. Or to be more accurate, what we need to do is to look at the broken body of Christ hanging on the cross. Because it's the cross of Christ that is utterly transforming for how we feel as well as how we think. Uh, About all of this. See, we ask the question why does God allow suffering? And I think, well, how about we ask that question of this man dying a slow, excruciating death? Why not ask the question of suffering to a man being crucified? Because this man being crucified is no ordinary man. This Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God, one with the Father in his very nature. He is very God. And so if we ask him, as it says here, want to ask God himself the question: God, why are you suffering on that cross? God, why are you suffering on that? On that cross? Very different question. And it provides us with some very different answers that take us to the heart of the Christian faith. God, why are you suffering on that cross? Here's one answer from Isaiah 53, which describes God in Christ suffering for us. He suffers for us us. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about what will take place at the cross. It says this of Jesus, surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. This is the most marvelous truth about the cross of Christ. God, why are you suffering on the cross? Well, he's suffering to do us good. There's a revelation here about the character of God. What is God like? Is God all-knowing? Is God all-loving? Is God all-powerful? Well, here's something. God will suffer in our place, in his love for us, he would prefer to suffer death himself than see all the people that he loves and whom he has created suffer death. There is a divine exchange that takes place. And one of the most marvelous truths of the Christian faith is that where Jesus is described now in heaven, he's described as one is like a lamb, like a, like a dead-looking lamb, a lamb that was slain. He's he's not gone to the cross and then gone to the grave and then risen from the grave and is like now all just pristine again, like you'd never know it had happened, all of the death thing. In his resurrection appearances, he appears and he shows to the disciples, look, there's the scars here in my wrist, here in my feet, here in my side. He carries those scars, the result of his suffering, on beyond his resurrection, and on ascending into heaven, there's Jesus in heaven looking like lamb that's been slain. Because there's a glory, an immense glory in the character of God displayed in the scars that say, I'll suffer for you. You ask me about suffering and why I allow suffering. Well, here's a really different answer. I'll suffer for you. I have suffered for you an excruciating death. God, who is the author of all life, submitting himself to death for the good of other people. It makes a difference. It makes a difference, even in the scandal and the trauma of the Holocaust in the concentration camps. As people ask themselves, where is God? Where is God in Auschwitz? The testimony is that the answer sometimes occurred to people, He's on a cross. And that was transforming of people's experience. They weren't calling out to a God who was far away and distant and unconcerned and had no concept of suffering, but calling out to a crucified Christ. That's one reason why God is suffering, suffered on the cross. There are several other reasons. Here's another one. He suffered to set an example. God why are you suffering on that cross? Well, Jesus himself says to set an example. Matthew 16, verse 24 says this Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, this is amongst the least popular of all Christian teachings. Jesus says, You know, there will be suffering in this life, and the Christian can embrace it. There will be suffering in this life and the Christian can embrace it. The Christian life is not about avoiding all suffering. Jesus actually says there's some suffering that will come your way, some cross for you to bear and your task is to take it up. Take it up. Don't complain about it. Take it up. In churches like ours, by which I mean ones that do have testimony of healing miracles and where we pray for God to do impossible things, sometimes people think we're just all a little bit too optimistic. Uh, sometimes people say to us, you know, you churches, we don't often get called happy clappy anymore. I mean, I clap, you notice that. Um, not many of you do, so um, we can't be called that anymore. Um, but people, maybe they didn't even call us happy. I mean, there's a few people smiling now, but I don't know. But people say, look, you're really positive about what God can do. But, you know, there are some things that we just need to lament. There's stuff that's wrong. You know, where does lament feel? I know our worship teams sometimes, and we got, we had the song this morning, Blessed Be Your Name, you know, when I'm found in the desert place. It's about as close as we get in our sung worship to lament. We acknowledge that there is a desert place. Um, we don't do corporate wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's not in our song repertoire. Uh, It's actually, I don't know if there are any, there are are not many songs out there like that. If there were, they wouldn't be very popular. And sometimes I get asked the question, but shouldn't we do that? Shouldn't we have a time corporately when we just lament what is wrong with the world? The various crosses that we have to bear and the pain and the suffering There is, After all, there's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. It's a biblical place for lament. My perspective on this is there's plenty of lament that goes on in our church community, but it it goes on uh, in people's kitchens and in people's front rooms as people weep over cups of tea with one another and put an arm around each other and listen to what's going on. There's plenty of lament that goes on. There's plenty of complaint that comes out and is directed towards God and says, why? is that happens, we don't do it all together. And um, if you come across some rich vein of excellent lament songs, then please let our worship leaders know but actually, we are also called to rejoice together. And most people who, are, who have cause for lament would prefer to be sat being listened to over a cup of tea than joining in with a bunch of other people singing a song about it. Jesus' death on the cross shows us that God takes suffering seriously. He's not brushing it under the carpet as if it doesn't matter. It's right there on display. And Jesus says, this is part of the Christian life. And his example of suffering gives our suffering dignity. It's not just something we're doing sort of hidden from God's sight. It's something that's part and parcel of the example of following Christ. God, why are you suffering on that cross? Well, he suffers for us and he sets us an example. And there's more. He does it to work justice. Romans 3 says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is rich, rich stuff. A sacrifice of atonement, well, there's a phrase. A sacrifice of atonement, what does that mean? Well, we modern people don't really get the ancient practice of making sacrifices on an altar. That's not something we instinctively understand, but that's what this passage speaks about. What those sacrifices did was they pleased God and they restored relationship with him. They pleased God, and they restored relationship with him. A sacrifice meant that we could be at one, united with God. And that's where the word atonement comes from. It was coined to uh, communicate this truth that through the sacrifice that Jesus made, we can be at one with God, from which comes the word at one which we now say as atonement. That sounds like the kind of story that when you Google it will be proven wrong, doesn't it? Don't Google it now, but I am right. It's true. God acted to bring us back into relationship with him. But he didn't do it like some heroic warrior in a Hollywood movie with some gun or sword, slaying demons, you know, sort of flying off the screen as he charges through. Jesus came and died. God brought about justice for all people by dying in pain. Jesus suffered to bring about justice. You know, that's why, you know, we love the story of Nelson Mandela, or of Gandhi. Because there's something of Christ's character that is seen in their lives. Now, it turns out Gandhi was inspired by the teaching of Christ from the sermon on that. Not a Christian himself, but inspired by Christ. Mandela, more obviously inspired by Christ and seeking to live a Christian life. Uh, that's what Jesus did. Through suffering, he brought about radical, radical change. He affected justice. God, why are you dying? Sorry, why are you suffering on that cross? Actually, Jesus' suffering brings about good. And in that, think of Gandhi, think of Mandela, think of whatever suffering you're facing right at this moment. There is good that will come. The scriptures promise that God works in all things for the good of those who love him. Sometimes that good is, you just can't, can't imagine it, can't see it. We're back with a logical problem saying, well, I just can't see it. Well, God knows. God knows. And he doesn't just know from the outside like some kind of super clever being. He's lived it and shown us the way. And here's the last thing. God, why are you suffering on the cross? Well, to conquer death. To conquer death. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 54 says, Death has been swallowed up. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Jesus, before his death, and speaking of it, said this to his disciples, You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, just just take that in as a promise. Your grief will turn to joy. Your night will be followed by a sunrise. Your grief, Jesus says, will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child, he goes on to say, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Um, Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist, put these words into the mouth of one of his characters uh, in one of his novels, and they're really good. He said, I believe that suffering will be healed and made up for and that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, that in the world's finale, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood they've shed, that it will not only make it possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. This is amazing stuff that speaks of life beyond this life, of life beyond death, of life in eternity, of life outside of time and space as we know it, it speaks of a future when Jesus will come to change everything about the cosmos and renew all things. You know, at this point, people sometimes say, there it is, That. Christianity is such a crutch for the emotionally weak. Because that's starting to sound really good. And you Christians, you like that, don't you? (laughs) Because it sounds really good. Yesterday, um, out on the streets, seeking to talk to people and say, God loves you. He's got an amazing plan for your life. The person uh, that I was with, together we met a guy who was on the building site at the Westgate Center. And we started to tell him these things, and his response was really interesting. He said, well, look, you don't need to be sharing that with me. You know, you need to go find some homeless people to share that with, because they really need to hear that. It's, like, I, it's not, I, I, no, no, I don't need that. You know, my life's all right. I don't need that. Go find some people that are really emotionally needy, and you tell them that, because they need something to believe. And he didn't put it quite in these words, but what he was saying was, that Christian belief, that's the crutch for the weak. And I'm not feeling weak. So I don't need it. I have to say, uh, that is the most peculiar argument. Let me just try and tease it apart and help see why. It's a most peculiar argument. It basically amounts to saying that um, it's a declaration that. Christianity does you good in a way that atheism never will and therefore you shouldn't have it. That is a peculiar argument to make. It's, um, it's put it another way. It says, my atheism must be true because it is so emotionally unsatisfying. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, atheism is indeed emotionally unsatisfying compared to the Christian truth. It, atheism, followed to its logical conclusions, will say that creatures are born, creatures die, so they wouldn't call them creatures because they've not been created. Organisms are born, organisms die. The strong eat the weak, and there's nothing to say that that's wrong. There's no shoulder to cry on, no hope it will ever be made right. The Christian message provides a far better, richer answer to the emotional problem of suffering. There's a clear logical answer. The emotional riches or the resources in the Christian faith provide, I mean, I've just mentioned four things. If I had all day, I could keep going all day with just the resource of the richness of Christian truth that comes to bear to help us in the suffering of life, the pain that we experience, we can say that creation is good, suffering is awful, God steps into our pain, evil is dealt with, wickedness is forgiven, and the world is made new. And that's just before breakfast. So we have a brilliant answer to the emotional challenge, the emotional problem of suffering. I just want to finish by being a little bit practical and say, well, that's all very good. What do we do then when we, which will undoubtedly happen in the coming week, find ourselves talking to someone who is suffering? What do we do? Well, I just want to suggest very simply, and these three words are nicked from J. John, and they're great. Show care, offer prayer, be ready to share. The first thing to do when we meet anyone who is suffering in any way is to show empathy. (laughs) Say, I'm just so sorry. I'm so sorry that you're experiencing that. I I wish you weren't. I can feel just a little bit of what that must be like, and already I'm just so sorry. And then maybe practical care to offer. Uh, Taking meals for those who are struggling practically. Just so many different things that we can do. Words of kindness can go a million miles towards doing people good. And the fact is that because God cares, he often draws near to those who are suffering. People who are suffering often experience God, experience things spiritually, because God in his compassion comes close to those who are suffering. And we can join in with him in showing care. We can offer to pray for people. Uh, That's, I think, straightforward. And in offering to pray, we make a statement of hope. Things don't have to remain the way they are. And God wants to draw close. And it may be, it just may be, that having cared for someone and having prayed for someone, that the conversation goes on to, why are you doing this, Mr. Christian? Why, or Miss Christian, why why, why are you doing this? And there may well be opportunity to speak about the reason for the hope that we have. And the great thing about speaking about the reason for the hope that we have is that people can learn that they don't have to depend on our prayers, but they can pray for themselves. And this guy that we met yesterday who'd smoked something that had left him disabled and had his mum and his stepdad both having uh, diagnoses of cancer, we said to him, Oh, so should we pray for those guys? He said, No, no. He said, I met some gospel people before in my life, and uh, I know I can pray for them, and I need need to pray for them. So you don't, no, don't pray for them. (laughs) I need to pray for them. That's a much stronger position than if only, if all we'd ever done was cared and prayed for him. By sharing something of the good news about Jesus Christ, people learn that they too can access all of those riches of the Christian faith. They too can pray, and that makes all the difference. We're going to break bread together, which will focus our thinking on this Christ whom we love, who loves us, who died for us. It will focus us on his suffering and it will focus us on the promise that he's made to us. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. So Jesus did teach us to remember what he had done. Um, just picking up on this, even on this one theme of suffering, it's amazing how it, it just all comes back to Christ. And Jesus taught us to remember him in a particular act, which is breaking bread, um, on the night that he was betrayed, thinking of suffering, betrayed by a close friend.